Hello and welcome to Plants and Pets, the podcast where we talk about things that happen in the world of plants. I am Tegan. Hi, I'm Joram. Just went to a weird, tired place there. My voice sounded, um, I don't know if we've got this weird connection issue happening again where everything sounds a bit robotic and I felt like I just tried to imitate the machines and made my voice a little bit more. <laughs> I am acknowledging their powers. I am mirroring the, the people in charge. I am going to survive in this new world of robots. That is my plan. <laughs> this is the Plants and Pipettes podcast. That was beautiful because, like, on my end, it sounds really, <laughs> really Android. I do have that thing. I mean, I have that thing where I, if I hang out with people who have a certain accent, I pick up the accent quite quickly, which, you know, it means I am a mirror, which I think means not to bring up zombies all the time, but I would be a Quizzling. So in that World War Z book, when the zombie apocalypse happens, there's some people who like decide that their best way out of it is to just pretend to be zombies in the hope, I guess, that... I think it's it's a mental illness. It's not like a a good plan because the zombies can tell they're not zombies, but there's people who just sort of try to pretend to be... I think that's me. I think that's I, what it's, I'll it's, do. Doesn't it depend on the, on the movie universe? I don't know how it is in, in World War Z, but I like they do it in Shaun of the Dead and it works, and they do it in Walking Dead and it works. So In Walking Dead, I frankly don't understand why they don't always walk around covered in zombie guts. I mean, they, they worked that out in like the third episode, and then they just seem to like forget it and start running around for the rest of... I don't understand that. I think that's with so many TV shows, they... When they have something supernatural, they sometimes use plot devices um, that would break the rest of the story. It's the same with like the Harry Potter time turner. Like they have means of time travel, and they never use them again except for like one single occasion. Instead of like constantly fixing everything with time travel that they literally can do, um, and I just forget about it. And I think it's the same in, in shows like The Walking Dead. They just it would solve all the problems if they would stick mm. to the things that, like, if they would always use the the best practice that they developed at some point in the plot. I mean, especially when you, like, theoretically, you should have character development and people should get better at, you know, skills, like, you know, fighting yeah. or whatever. Um, but then the baddies also have to get better or it's boring. I, w- yeah. I was recently watching some some Charmed and there's actually this exposition where one of the characters is like, yes... As you become more powerful as witches, the baddies that come after you will also become more powerful. And it's like, hang on, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Great plot hole justification, Batman. (laughs) Sure, why not? (laughs) Yeah. I know, I know. I can't run a TV show, so. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is where you really need the suspension of disbelief, where you have to be just, just be accepting that this is how you can advance the plot and tell an interesting story because if it would all be logical most of the things would not happen like most of the problems would be solved with a phone call in most shows or movies um where there's some that misunderstanding like a man who's been watching sex in the city the reboot <laughs> no i i haven't <laughs> watched a minute of sex in the city ever like i i have no idea what it's about um all it's I know about, about like it, an old man riding a bicycle and then he has a heart attack and forgets that like nobody calls nine one one. That's what I've heard. That they're like <laughs> a reboot and that's that's the goss. But I don't I, I don't want to talk to you about something that you actually wanted I, I gave you homework that you had yeah. to watch something different, actually a movie, not a TV show. Yes. Did you watch did you do your homework? Did you watch Don't Look Up? Yes, I watched it. Um I started watching it at the gym, um, and then it had small chunks and then I liked it so much and I really wanted to see how 
how it plays out that I then just kept watching it on the side somewhere because um, I didn't have the time to s sit down and do it in one sitting. Um, but still, yeah, I, I really, I I liked it. It was enjoyable to watch as sort of the, the big summary, but it's also terrifying. It also terrified me so much. Um, and to be honest, it's it's supposed to be funny or have funny moments. And I, I, I could not laugh because it's too real for me. I feel like... There was one really funny moment, my favorite. Did I, I told you you had to like look for my favorite moment. Do you know what my favorite moment was? Uh, I just remembered you wanted me to look for like the typical male um, behavior or, or like typical... Yeah. It's not typical male necessarily. It's typical like um, the sort of seeking fame in this crazy world we live in. So there's a scene where... She, one of the main characters, she's discovered that, you know, the world's going to end. There's this, like, well, asteroid coming. And she tells her partner, and he has an extreme panic attack and is vomiting on the street. He believes her, and he knows it's true, and he freaks out, and he's like, the world is ending, and he realizes that. And then she goes on TV and tells other people, and everybody responds. So there's some spoiler alerts here, but guys, you should have watched it by now. Um, so she goes <laughs> and then on TV and is saying, you need to panic everybody panic and she gets dubbed sort of the crazy lady on tv and he immediately turns around and writes this clickbaity article of know that crazy woman on tv i f***ed her <laughs> um and i just that to me was the most perfect i mean the way it puts humanity i just i loved it i think about that moment so much and it's it's beautiful and it is he he knows the world is ending right he does know she's correct but he just decides to go for this instead. What a like yeah. the, the 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 act of denial is. I guess it gives him also some feeling of safety. Like he didn't want to feel that the world was ending, so it also was a nice place to be to deny it. But then also this extra like yeah. fame hoariness. Like oh, I oh, I loved it. I would have guessed that you meant the part where um, both Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who is sort of a professor, and um, Jennifer Lawrence's character, who is a PhD candidate, who discovered the actual comet coming, um, they're both in the mission control room when they launch the um, sort of uh, attack towards the comet, where they wanted to launch a lot, a lot of rockets to deflect the comet, um, this big uh, savior mission. They're both in the room, and the president of the United States, which is a female version of Trump, um, hands over the microphone to the discoverer of the comet and to the professor guy, who wasn't the discoverer. Um, mm. And he first uh, briefly looks at his PhD candidate and then continues and then actually does like a little speech and launch the rockets and to me that was the part that i i thought you would um that would stay in your mind as the typical uh, male supervisor thing who wants often says the right things and wants to be a nice guy but when it comes to um the, the, the critical point when it comes then it, He's just taking the action and working for his own gains and not actually stepping forward and not being, not saying, look, it's not me. You, uh, my PhD candidate actually deserves the honor of doing that. I thought it was that. I also really liked the thing with the snacks, the person charging for the snacks. I think that was just beautiful, like running joke throughout the film. <laughs> Makes me so happy. And it's it's like, that's something that would also screw with my head. So I just... I love it. Um, and I quite like the bird at the end. Like, I know a lot of people didn't like the ending. Um, yeah, me neither. But I know I liked it. I quite liked the, like, yeah. 
<laughs> but she just gets. I mean, it was so stupid, but I mean, it was very hard to end that that film, right? I mean, you could end when the the planet exploded, but I like that. You know, they had already predicted how she would die, and then this bird just like comes and kills her, and he's like, "Oh, I think that's called I don't know, Baba Duke or whatever it was." Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I I I wish for to have a little bit of happiness would have been that their stupid rocket ship. Um, also explodes um, or fails because they had their own um, rescue mission failing before, and I I wish oh, that they. Oh, so would... you want the Hollywood ending? Is that what I'm hearing? No, I yeah, I want the ending where everybody is dead, and not that not that the rich suckers can escape and then find a planet that's actually livable. Um, the, with the open question whether they survive or not on that planet, but that has. An atmosphere and plants and and animals and stuff that humans could live on, um, uh, even though that I don't think that they would stand a chance there, being the people that they are. But I don't know. It felt to me too much. I think it's very clear they're all going to get eaten by the birds, right? No, it's. I, it wasn't. It wasn't as clear. Like I would have wished for a more dramatic ending of all of these people, of the people who make who get on a special spaceship and escape the doom that they've been. That they could have prevented, but chose not to prevent. Um, but this is how it will play out for us as well. I mean, I know that, um, and it, and that's the thing that really made me sad about this movie. Every, I mean, it's very clear it's a farce of uh, of the climate change and how we as a, as a global population respond to that. Um, with, I mean, this is very focused on the Uni- United States, um, but there's parallels all over the world to that, uh, and we will see the same thing, right? everything will i mean also covid right everybody's like this is both covid and climate change and yeah Mm. but this will this will like climate change will like be the end of a lot of life to i don't know how to phrase it like gently it will just kill a lot of people and there will be the rich one percent or half percent at the top, they will live in like special bunkers or habitats or um, restricted zones where they can continue their lives, um, similar to the people who escape to a different planet. And maybe they will also not thrive then and survive because you need all of the rest around the, or, or on the world to survive. So yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I I enjoyed the movie, um, but it's I'm it made me really it made me really sad. It made me really hopeless. <laughs> wow. I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not supposed to be a. F- it's not. It's supposed to be funny, but it's not supposed to be happy, right? I mean, it's yeah. supposed to be kind of. Here is a mirror. It's like satire. I mean, that's that's the point of satire. Like. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> my favorite plant. Uh, today it's my turn to talk about my favorite plant and I'm actually finding something from a popular science book that I read recently. I just actually read it recently for my work. It's about climate change, but it does mention, I mean, it's, it's about biology and how plants and animals are adapting to climate change. And there was some discussion about plants. Um, and one of them <laughs> struck my fancy because it's called Toxico Scordian Venomosum Venomosum. Yoram, can you guess what the defining characteristic of this plant is? Poison, poison, poison. Yeah, it's it's poison. The scordium part of the toxicoscordian apparently means like garlic bulb. So it's basically like um bone, like this bulb mm-hmm. thing. So toxic bulb, venomosum, I'm going to guess 
poison and then <laughs> variation venomosum really poisonous like really poisonous <laughs> poisonous bulb um and its other name the common name is the death camera so in case you didn't get it from the latin name you're not so great at latin that's cool we've also called it the death camera maybe don't put it in your mouth um as you can guess it is quite quite unideal um it has <laughs> It's dangerous for humans, although it's more of a problem for livestock. I mean, if they sort of eat them, they are found in North America, um, across Canada, the western coast of the United States, and also um, Mexico. And it can be fatal if you consume it. You need to consume like 2 to 6% of the body weight of whoever's consuming it, which I think is quite a lot. I think mm -hmm. it would be quite hard to get that much. Um but it's still not something that you should probably be trying. Yeah, so the poisoning comes from a chemical inside the plant, which is a steroidal alkaloid. Um, it's called zygosine. And yeah, that's it's just a poison. Um, lots of sort of rings attached to some bits. I, I don't really know how to explain <laughs> chemical structures. And it's quite a complex chemical structure. I could read it out to you, but that's also not very helpful. <laughs> Um, you know what? We'll link to the Wikipedia article. They have it there. If you do take any of this zygosine, you apparently can salivate excessively, which is cool, but less cool is that you also can get nausea, vomiting, cramping, diarrhea, and then also some effects on your blood pressure and your heart rate, um, and some depression and some things that are awful and lead to, lead to death. So not ideal. But what, what is interesting about this plant and what comes up in the book, uh, which I will put a link to um, in the show notes, it's called Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squid, is the fact that this plant has a very special relationship with a bee that pollinates it. Okay, so there's actually two plant species from the Toxicogordian Genus, one is the Venomosum and the other one is called Paniculatum. I don't know what Paniculatum means. I didn't look up that Latin. I'm assuming it means you panic. No, I'm sure it has something to do with like a panicle or something, but I don't know. Let's say you also panic if you have this one. It's also poisonous and there are two plant species and they are both, they seem to be only serviced by a single bee, which is conveniently called the death camera bee. So these are like death cameras and they are serviced by a death camera bee. And it looks like the reason behind this is because the zygosine is not only in the leaves, which makes sense, you don't want to be eaten, and the flowers, which I guess also kind of makes sense, you don't want your flowers to be eaten, but it's also just like in the syrup, the nectar, and in the pollen, and it's just really everywhere in the plant. So the plant has not made a lot of effort to protect its pollinators, or it, it wouldn't have if, if other pollinators were coming. The, the research I was looking at actually involved scientists seeing if other bees like being poisoned, basically. They were seeing if the other bees would survive if they drank some of the zygosine in a syrup. As it turns out, the bees did not like it. They tried to... Um, I'm imagining... You know like when a cat gets something in its mouth and it's trying to brush it off its tongue? Like they, <laughs> they, 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 they do tongue grooming, which I assume, yeah, it's like waving its little hands and trying to like clean off its tongue with its little hands. Um Many became paralyzed and some even died. That did not deter the scientists. Um, Yoram, you've mentioned we should have more trigger warnings. Trigger warning if you don't like hearing about insects dies, uh, <laughs> dying. After they had already found that some of the bees became paralyzed, they then also tried feeding 
the zygocene to the larvae of the bees and yeah they also died um so <laughs> it turns out zygocene does in fact kill bees it seems to kill a lot of bees but there's one type of bee that andrina astragali which likes these two plants and it also seems to forage almost exclusively on these two plants this is death mm-hmm. came a bee and it's happy the plants are happy everybody's got this just really tight-knit relationship which is which is quite rare right so usually you have a plant that's got lots of insects coming to it or maybe you've got like kind of special relationships with things like orchids where you know the orchids being all sexy and pretending to be a, a female wasp and getting certain wasps to come but it's <laughs> yes. it's not that common that there's just sort of one or two um in the relationship in both directions like mm-hmm. you know the bees basically only coming to these flowers and the flowers are basically only serving these bees because otherwise <laughs> the bees die um and what I couldn't find, so in the book it says that the the bees have a certain way to digest and detoxify zygosine. But I couldn't find science. I couldn't find the articles behind that, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I found something different, which said that they actually were maybe okay because they weren't so much into eating the pollen. So while other bees are getting it all up in their face these guys are using it for something different so it says that the death comma bee is a solitary ground nesting species keep that in mind we're coming back to that and they collect pollen but apparently they don't eat it and they probably don't eat the nectar as well um this is from a an article at the university of colorado boulder on their website in their science magazine so we'll link to that as well Okay, so these these death camera bees, they're ground nesting species, which is kind of part of this. Um, I found an article at the University of Colorado Boulder in their science magazine, we'll link to that, which says that they're probably not eating the pollen. They're collecting pollen from the death camera, but they're probably not eating it, and they're probably also not eating the nectar. Um, and instead, they collect nectar from multiple plants, um, which helps pollinate the plants. But then they roll that pollen into a ball, put it in a little nest that they've dug in the soil and then put one egg on top of the pollen and sort of seal the nest. And then when the larva hatch, they eat the pollen. So maybe the larva are tolerant to the poison. Maybe they have a way to like detoxify it. Maybe they can just like sequester it. So just like put it away out of the way and sort of not deal with it, which is kind of similar, but it means they're not digesting it. Or maybe the pollen also loses the toxicity as it ages. Yeah, that's what um, that would be my guess that it the time makes a difference and it breaks down the the compound. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. So this is this was from 2018 and I haven't found anything more recent, but I didn't do a huge deep dive, I have to admit, but it's interesting. It's interesting that this plant has just gone for this strategy which seems bizarre. I mean, entirely bizarre. Especially if either of them disappears or as the book suggests you know shifts their their timing perhaps by something like climate change could be a disastrous strategy if you've only got one thing that can actually pollinate you without dying okay so that is the the death comma two species of those and the special little death comma bee that is apparently the only thing that can <laughs> deal with death commas without dying well done, B. Diversity in the class. Science. Uh, today I'm talking about someone who's not 
really a plant scientist, but a biologist and a science communicator. And I think there are some interesting things for us to learn from. And um, that's why, and here with the help of Tegan, I have to say, um, <laughs> picked uh, Janet Iwasa, um, who is uh, helping researchers to understand their science better. And she's doing that by creating animations for together with these researchers. Um, she's a visual artist and scientist. Um, she holds a PhD in cell biology. And uh, Janet Ivasa um, studied animation then in Hollywood as well after getting her PhD um, in, a, in a company that does professional Hollywood-type animations and is now working in Utah as the head of the group. It's called just the Animation Lab, which I find quite cool in itself. It sounds like something Pixar would have, but this is a research lab. Um, mm -hmm. And what she's doing is that she works together with researchers um, all across the world to visualize their findings um, in... Uh, like they're, they're how molecules and proteins how they interact and um she's drawing like she's making these these three-dimensional anim uh, animations and she says in an in an article that i read that she that she wrote um how the vis visualization um of the science often reveals how even people who work closely for years on the same topic have a completely different understanding of what's happening on the physical level of how the molecules come together of how the, how long the proteins bind how the conformations or the structure of the proteins change when they bind they might have very different opinions on that but could not express that before and only when they are looking together at an animation that they built they can start to discuss and be like i did not imagine it being this way i imagined it mm -hmm. a different way um and uh, she she retells like a specific meeting where that exactly happened where then in the end they had three different hypotheses of how these these proteins come together and do do their job and this this discussion was only ha being had because she was there making this animation and trying to figure out how to draw these things i think we've kind of discussed this a little bit before um but there was these old sort of software or even games there were sort of gamification where people were trying to fold proteins or fold you know um organic structures maybe some rna or, or something and they found that you know often scientists have quite this bias from knowledge where you have an expected way something should turn out, you know, mm -hmm. you think it should look like something else you've seen, which we're also going to come back to, I think. Um, but then they had like just random people doing it and they were doing it in different ways that were not expected because they didn't know that there should be any rules. And they did, you know, mm -hmm. they were just following the very strict physical bond rules, not like what was predestined in their mind is what they thought the solution would be. Yeah, yeah, I think it's exactly that. And um, the fact that we very often communicate just in written text about how things interact. Um, we've read countless and written some of them as well, um, where we describe protein and then random acronym interacts at the C terminus, so at one end mm -hmm. of the protein with another acronym of a protein. And everybody in their mind draws their own picture of what that looks like um when these two things interact when we just have it in writing and have it in this very technical writing and so with animation um they manage to get a different look at it literally a different look at it that helps them then to discuss this and and figure out or answer questions that they have about it or, or come up with new experiments how to test for certain things so it's it's a really cool thing to do do these animations and if you want to see one we're linking to one where they did um 
Uh, they started a SARS-CoV-2 um, visualization, so a COVID visualization and annotation project, which is pretty cool, um, where they try to animate the entire life cycle of the virus. Um, but they're not just trying to do this as a independent, like individually um, made animation that they did in the lab and they're just presenting the finished animation. No, they, they built an entire platform where researchers can discuss what they're seeing there and what evidence they have to support the different steps. Um, so this is a, this tool has the video in the center, but then you have um, comments from researchers on the side and a list of evidences and literature pieces that um, are sort of the, the source that they based a certain drawing on and i found that quite cool because they it's a it's a living developing thing it's not an animation that some artist at one point makes and then that's set and then you have to make a new thing later again if you have new evidence this is a thing where from the get-go they acknowledge that there are so many open questions that it needs to be an ongoing process to to figure this out um and even though I'm I'm too, not enough of an expert in virus biology to to understand most of it that's that's written there, I think it's it's very cool the way they approach this um, this problem. And another thing that um, it was also from the article from Janet Ivasa that she that she wrote, which I found quite um, quite interesting that she clearly stated that is that animation while it has all of these advantages to have a different look at something and come up with new ideas and work together and discuss it it also has major drawbacks um, things that we just haven't solved yet like for example annotations um, how to label the things that you're seeing in an animation to make it still readable especially when it becomes a little bit more complex uh, and the other thing which i find even more interesting is how do you distinguish between the things that you fairly certainly know for example a direct interaction between two proteins but then um, you have some part that you don't know and then in the animation you have to move the things from a to b to get to the next bit that you know again but how do you make it clear that the stuff in between is unknown because whatever you do in there forms an opinion of what's happening there and then you can sort of in introduce a bad idea because you just don't know it better at this point. Um, and this is something that we don't haven't solved yet, but I thought it I, I found it very interesting to to explicitly put that in the discussion of how great animations are for science. Um, so that's Janet uh, Ivasa from the animation lab in Utah. And uh, we're linking to a couple of articles about her and especially to the COVID visualization. And I think if you're interested in this sort of molecular annotation or animation um, problem, have a look at it. Um, so just before we move on to the bio section, I want to mention that in the US, Canada, and I think also Germany, but not the UK, February is Black History Month. And I just found when I was looking around a couple of things. So there's the Plant Cell Atlas from uh, last year and also a linked comment, I think, in Trends in Plant Science, which discuss for uh, black plant scientists of prominence. So we're going to link to that as well if anyone wants to, ha wants to have a look. There's also the Twitter tags, um, Black in Botany. There's one that's Black in Plant Science, but there seems to only be one tweet that's happening so far there but black and botany is sort of the one for our field i would say so we're gonna um add those links in as well let's talk 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 about bias 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 bias
Hey, so today it's my turn to talk about bias and I'm actually pulling something from a keynote talk by Margaret Mitchell, who you might have heard that name before, Yoram. Not I'm, in the field of plants. I'm terrible with names, therefore I... It, it seems to ring a bell, but I can't tell you at all who that is. Okay, so this Margaret Mitchell is not the Margaret Mitchell who is the author of Gone with the Wind. She is another more current alive Margaret Mitchell. Um, to, she's working actually on AI and she specifically has a look at the biases that are happening in AI. She was formerly working from Google. At one point she got dismissed from Google in quite a complex case. So there was a, another mm. scientist called Timnit Gebru and you might have heard about this going down. So she was looking at bias and trying to publish something and there was some discussion about what could be made public or whose names could be on a paper she wanted to, to publish um, with some findings on bias. And there was a thing where Google said she resigned and she said they basically forced her out um, based on this. So Tim that was sort of came out and then afterwards Margaret Mitchell has also come out for defending Tim. It was a big thing. Um, look into that if you want to. Very interesting. Anyway, um, yeah, Margaret Mitchell is doing this, bias, fairness, and machine learning sort of thing. And I was looking at this keynote talk that she gave, which I'll link, somebody sent that to me. And it's sort of looking at bias in vision and language as, as associated to artificial intelligence. And from that talk, I was sort of looking at one of the elements, which is specifically a reporting bias, which I don't know if it has a specific name, but I'm gonna call it prototype bias. Somebody tell me if this is wrong or if it already has a name. So, Yoram, I've shared with you a picture of a plant. Could you describe to me, could you report what you see? Um, can I just name the plant or is that already wrong if I say... You can, you can report whatever you want. Your job okay. is just to report what you see. I would say this looks to me like a monstera plant, as in it has large leaves that has these... Um, it's not holes, it's invaginations. It's also not the right word, but it's sort of like the, the leaves are a little bit plucked apart. Um, and it's a, a dark green, a short growth, uh, with no central stem, but it's sort of a bushy growth. And this is probably how I would describe it. Okay. You actually did really quite well. I mean, you, you didn't describe the pot, which I find weird, but, um, so the example, <laughs> <laughs> the example that Margaret Mitchell used in her talk was that sort of pictures of bunches of banana sort of on a shelf in a shop and she said usually she asks people to describe them and they say oh it's a banana and then if you say okay go deeper they say oh it's a banana with some stickers on them it's got sort of that little this banana was grown in Costa Rica sticker oh it's bananas on shelves oh it's bunches of bananas and they go through sort of iterations of these oh it's a bunch of bananas on a shelf but like most people don't mention the fact that the bananas are yellow and you actually did this with the plant. You mentioned that it was a dark green plant. And I, unless I misunderstood you, you got the color. Yes. But she is explaining that, in fact, people don't say the banana is yellow because that is how we see a banana. That's the default system for a banana. So the prototype of a banana in our head is yellow. On the other hand, if I showed you a banana that was brown or a banana that was green or, you know, had little tiger stripes on it, you would be much more likely to color, to comment on the way it deviated from what the prototype is in your head. So this is kind of 
a, a prototype bias where things are assumed and therefore we don't report on them. Mm-hmm. And this sort of is a thing that is, is generally known. Humans have a reporting bias as we have lots of different ways that we, we report in a biased way. But one of them is the fact that we the way we write about actions, outcomes or things is not actually reflecting their frequency out there in the real world. So another example that Margaret Mitchell showed in her talk is that if you have text and you're looking at what words are in the text, the examples are things like exhaled, blinked, hugged, breathed, murdered, laughed, spoke. As it turns out, the word murdered is mentioned, you know, in this data set. It's got like 2.8 million mentions, whereas blinked has only got 390,000 mentions. Obviously, every person is blinking more than they're murdering or being murdered, hopefully. But again, she said this is something that is just, it's assumed, it's, it's known to be happening all the time. So we don't describe when somebody blinks. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like an element of this is this kind of a programming problem as well. So like, you know, if you're writing, if you've ever tried to write program in a fun way, if you don't describe all the things properly, you you end up with a program that like code that doesn't work. But it's also obviously a problem if we're using this as input to do AI, AI sorry, because you've got some yeah. some bias in there. But I mean, there's also ways that this kind of prototype bias can work against us in the science world. So Yoram, I think you sent me this the other day. There's this thing of, you know, a... Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the story that I've I, um, seen, um, I think on TikTok or somewhere, is the, the story goes like this. Um, three doctors point to a man and say, this man is our brother. The man says, I have no brother. Who is lying? Yeah, so the one I heard growing up was a... A man and his son are in an accident and are rushed into emergency room. And the doctor says, I can't operate on this person. It's my son. And then who, who's what's happening? Who's the thing? And in both cases, I mean, we, we could have a science version also. So like, oh, a, a man goes to a universe. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> A man goes to defend his thesis and with his father and his the, the professor says, I can't mark this thesis, that's my son. Something like this. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> that was very bad. We'll, we'll write it out. We'll workshop this. Anyway, the point is, you know, in your head, you have this prototype of a, a surgical person or what was your example? Um, a doctor. Yeah, a doctor, like a doctor or a surgeon or, you know, also a professor being default sort of white male and this can then um, impact us. So that's kind of the the thing that's come up quite a lot, these obvious biases and something we always talk about here. I was thinking that it can also work maybe in other contexts, which are maybe a little bit less serious, but can still have impact. So uh, I was wondering if like when we describe phenotypes of plants and things like that, we often have sort of in our mind what something looks like mm-hmm. as the default. It's kind of this like normalizing to the wild type. And if this prototype is not great, then you might end up with some interesting deviations that are not quite... Or even just people like in protocols always describing things, like only noticing things when they go wrong, but that's only helpful if you already have the background of what mm-hmm. looks right. 
Um, yeah, I think especially in protocols, you can imagine that um, if you if you say just assemble the gel, and this is a process that has like ten individual small steps, and some of them are very crucial to the end result. But you just say we just assembled the gel, and then you go into details about something that you put in the buffer, but the gel assembly itself could have already importance to the outcome of your experiment. But because you just assume this is a standard thing, you just do it. You just assemble a gel. Um, then uh, you can introduce sort of misunderstandings there or, or um, some ways that other people can't replicate your your experiment. Uh, I, and I also can imagine that in, in phenotypes and other descriptions of, of experiments that you do, you just look at a green clammy culture and you never wonder if you see if, if there's a dye in the water, if like the clams are all dead and there's some dye released or if there's still living cells. You just say, oh, it's, it's a green culture, everything is as I expected it and you never question it because it's just exactly the prototype that you expect. Yeah, I, w I was thinking sort of more of, you know, you're looking for a certain phenotype, like something is, is pale because it's, you know, mm -hmm. sick, but you're missing other things, like maybe it has less trichomes or maybe, you know, mm -hmm. the roots are different. Or, you know, even I've heard stories of people who are investigating mutants for a long time, but the wild type they were using, so the sort of what they were comparing it to as, as normal, was from a different, um, like, accession, so a different cultivar of... Arabidopsis and some of the different Arabidopsis types have quite different phenotypes. So then like what they were comparing to was mm -hmm. not a thing. And it's, it's a little bit different, but I mean, it's not quite the same thing as this reporting bias, but it does come down to sort of the same idea, which is what we see in the thing versus what we actually report, what we consider worth saying. And often there's this idea that when we think something, when we're looking for something, we think something is worth saying. And this is why we still have this phenomenon where people describe a mutant and they describe a certain characteristic of a mutant. And then a couple of years later, people describe that mutant and like, hey, there's this whole other phenotype that you didn't have. And maybe they didn't look under the right conditions, but maybe also they were like saying the ones that are important to them, which mm -hmm. like, I know this is a very narrow endpoint to come down to given the, the broad importance <laughs> of this topic as far as, you know, not having biased data input and not having general bias against certain people. But um, please always put photos <laughs> in your... Gonna be very petty now. Please always put photos of what your wild type looks like and what your mutant looks like, because if you just describe it, you're probably describing it wrong, just a little bit wrong. Um, but yeah, that is my my end take home message. That's really <laughs> take home message. No, I mean the real take home message is something that I do want to come back to this AI bias a little bit later. I've I was trying to look again for because we we've been discussing confirmation biases, and I was trying to look if there's one for AI. And I thought like ABC, it could be like the AI bias contradiction that we think that because it's AI, it's less biased, but because it's AI can actually be just like building bias. Okay, I'm going to workshop that as well. Yoram is looking so freaking skeptical at me right now. Uh, I just try to follow. And also, um, I'm, I just have this, this internal trigger that I just want to say AI in most cases is just fancy statistics with a fancy label on it that says this is artificial <laughs> intelligence when in fact it's just a broad scale like averages of of some things um but no come on I, now i we're... assume the ai at google is real ai i'm just like burned by looking at many other projects or or like startups and stuff they they, they claim they use ai and they have very simple heuristics that have been around for decades 
Um, but that's that's why I looking I'm looking so weirdly at you because I have this internal urge to be like it's all it's it's a lot of it is oversold um but that's not the point here but you say something that's also very important to me that bias uh, ai always introduces the biases that we have in the training data and we try, mm. we often obfuscate that by thinking now we build a neutral objective machine that's artificial intelligence they they are not they they don't care about skin color they don't care about your your background they are true neutral um uh, decision makers when we already baked all of the biases that we have in into them by the way we choose our data sets and that's why there are people um working at, at google and other big places trying to figure out how to design just the training data sets in a way to reduce the bias but i think most people acknowledge that it's close to impossible to completely get rid of it i mean yeah all data is is bias is a place you have to start at but i don't know i think like my point here was less about the the very deep things we can dive into about ai bias <laughs> yes. and more about the idea um that because we have these prototypes because we have like both prototypes so what we expect to see um or what we think we're is, is standard but also because we have our own expectations of what we want to see so these are sort of two different things happening um often what we describe is not necessarily exactly what's happening. It's what we think is worth reporting. Mm-hmm. And that in itself um, can be very influenced by these two factors of, yeah. Yeah. What our prototype is, that what our standard is, and also what we want the solution to be. So this <laughs> like, yeah. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. And here's my follow-up um, to your favorite plant story about the problems you get when you have a tight relationship between a plant and its pollinator and both of them rely on each other to work out. And you said, what happens if climate change pushes some some of the two players, one of the two players around um, in their biology? Um, there has been a study that looked at the flowering times of plants in the United Kingdom, and they found that um, compared to the, the time before 1985, um, they, or 19, is it 1989? 1986. This is the right year. They compared the, the time until 1986, um, and then the time un- from 1986 to the, today, and in our time now uh, plants flower about a month earlier than they did before 1986 um, and they uh, analyzed uh, more than 400,000 records from citizen science data from an app that's available in UK it's called Nature's Calendar um, and with that they could track a, la- a large number of different species across the whole country when they flower um, over the different years and they found, yeah, there has been a general shift to earlier flowering times, probably due to elevated temperatures and changes in the climate that sends an earlier trigger to the plants to um, to start flowering. And this has a couple of problems. Um, one is just very, very simple. If you have some crops that are flowering, like, for example, fruit trees, if they flower early and then you get another hit of frost, then the flower buds are killed off and then you have um, a lower harvest 
um, that is pretty straightforward. But then there's also the thing that you said uh, in your favorite plant story that when, for example, the plant suddenly flowers earlier, but the pollinator doesn't keep up with that in their life cycle, suddenly you have a desynchronization there and both of them perish when you have such a tight relationship between them. Um, and this could really disrupt ecosystems and therefore it's something we should be uh, worried about and, and look further into and try to yeah, do preventive measures, uh, which is easier said than done. Um, but now we have, with, with the help of citizen science data and large data sets, we can track things like flowering times across the whole country. So I have something that seems to be one of the, the big news stories of the week. I think, Yoram, you have the same thing or something mm -hmm. at least similar. It's that there is sort of hit a, a big point in genome sequencing projects. So the one I have is that scientists have passed the halfway mark in completing the plant tree of life. This is the idea that they're trying to get genomic data for... 13,000, 14,000 flowering plant genera, and they have half of that now. Um, this is sort of linked mainly to Kew Gardens, uh, but also it includes you know everyone from all over the world. So it's got 300 scientists, well, from 21 countries and 117 different institutes, all trying to put together these DNA sequences, which is sort of helping understand how species are linked to each other evolutionary. And I think... I think it's not like sequencing the whole genome, it's sequencing sections of the mm -hmm. genome, which will then allow these phylogenetics or these sort of relationship between the different plants to be understood better. That's the, the goal, I think. Yeah, yeah, they use d DNA probes and target specific genes so they don't um, sequence the entire genome because they say this creates so much additional data and therefore additional problems you might have. Mm -hmm. um, so they just target the... Uh, like 350 core genes that are found in all green plants and then they sequence just these genes and with that they then build this tree of life and i have something um, to add there because i looked at the you can browse the tree of life on the q website mm -hmm. and i did that and i realized that i have no idea how to read a phylogenetic tree so i looked that up and i found a cool explanation so we're linking that oh, as well nice. okay. um to finally understand like i've seen so many phylogenetic trees and papers and i always just glanced at it and said okay <laughs> and moved on um and with that now i have a little bit better understanding of how they work because they have numbers in them and some dimensions mean something and some dimensions don't mean something and this explains it very nicely and then you might be able to look at a tree and get a little bit better understanding of of what's going on there but mainly it's a resource for researchers to um, understand how uh, evolutionary plants um, behave or like are related to one another. Trigger warning, the examples do include a lot of bat viruses, but also whale viruses, which is something to look forward to for 2022. <laughs> um, my favorite thing in there is um, that there are two examples of other ways to draw a phylogenetic tree and they say this is just for show they're terrible to read and i will not discuss them further again <laughs> is it the sort of the exactly circle ones right yeah, the ones yeah. where it's just yeah that's not it's not easy is it yeah and also uh, we can't read text when it's at angles very well like it just yeah oh, and oof. also um 
using angles as um, as a dimension is for us very counterintuitive and very hard to understand. So, and circular stuff anyway. I just like that this is exactly a sentence that I would write if I write about types of figures. I'm like, people do that to show off. It's stupid. I won't be discussing this further. <laughs> <laughs> no, just no. <laughs> yeah. I have one brief one. I don't think know if we mentioned this last month or not, but there is a group of international respiratory societies uh, which have now banned their um, any researchers associated with tobacco companies from publishing in their journals that they are mm. controlling. And it's because Philip Morris, which is this huge tobacco company, recently brought out bought out a UK pharmaceutical firm that's called Vectura. And this is a pharmaceutical firm that makes inhalers. So this is obviously like a huge conflict and problem and people saying this is highly unethical. And as a response, they are now blocking people from doing this. So I think there is still quite a bit of research that is sort of funded by Philip Morris. I think the original draft genomes of tobacco actually had mm -hmm. Philip Morris International as like major funding corporation so there is something happening here i guess these are people who have more involvement in uh health journals so maybe it's a bit different but yeah interesting interesting move and i'm not really sure how if this will have any impact or escalate or what yeah yeah interesting yeah it's definitely interesting curious um i have one one last thing on my favorite topic which is crispr and i just stumbled across, uh, uh, upon this paper and I just want to briefly mention it here um, because I found it quite cool on a technical level. They managed to do uh, a CRISPR editing of a wild tomato species, Solanum peruvianum, um, which is a wild relative of tomato. Um, and they did something where they used no foreign DNA that they introduced to, um, to do the CRISPR cutting, the CRISPR genome editing. Because usually you bring in the CRISPR-Cas system by just classic transgenics, you put it somewhere in the genome, then it gets made, and then it does the editing, and then you do all sorts of crossing and stuff, and then you remove it again, the, the, the CRISPR-Cas um, gene, and then you have your genome-edited plant. But in many um, jurisdictions, this means that the entire process is transgenic and therefore evil and bad and should not be like put see the light of day ever. Um, and so many people are working on ways to do the same, get to the same end result without having the intermediate step of putting the actual CRISPR gene somewhere in the genome. And they did that by using protoplast regeneration. So they a protoplast is just when you take a plant cell and you remove its cell wall, it becomes this little blob of a cell. Um, it's fairly fragile, but you can keep it alive long enough to get some um, uh, Cas9 protein and CRISPR guide RNA, so the molecules, not the genes, into the, the cell. They do their job, then they get degraded, and then you have an edited cell. And then you can, from that one little blob of a plant cell, you can then make again an entire new plant that's fertile and growing well and then can be used like any other uh, conventional plant before um, and they did that with this wild tomato and it's it's interesting f for for um, breeders and science because 
wild relatives of our crop plants are always a great source for genetic material for crossing. So they might have some resistances, they might have some other genes in there that were lost during the breeding of our commercial lines, and so they're often crossed back into um, our production lines to like have more diversity gen on a genetic level. And being able to then also use CRISPR on these wild relatives makes it possible to then do even more advanced breeding um, potentially. And I, I just thought it's cool to to um, that they were able to just take this like little blob of a cell and then change it a little bit and make a to an entire new plant of it, which is just to say like they didn't invent that method that has been done before. Mm -hmm. But uh, I know, like from a couple of years ago, I, in my in my work, I actually was talking to a lot of different researchers who all had different approaches of doing something like this, and I knew how often, like how they all struggled in different ways. Like it's it's something that's technically very difficult to do to get the protein and the guide RNA in there and then keep the thing alive and then make another plant from it. There's a lot of things that can go wrong, and so I I just wanted to mention here that they managed to do it the entire way. Um, the final thing I want to mention is, I mean, every time before we do the podcast, I sort of look up plant news to see what's happening in the world of plants that I haven't found. And this inevitably brings me to some terrible news site. In this case, it's the Mirror. I apologize, but it's a report that a bamboo plant has caused damage to a neighbor's house. So basically, some people planted some bamboo. They wanted to have it as a hedge that was growing nicely. And they did not pay attention to what it was doing. And bamboo has this amazing ability to send out runners. So it sends runners underneath the earth and they pop up a little bit further along. Do you want to guess how much money worth of damage this bamboo managed to do? Four million pounds. No, it's only 100,000. It's fine. Um, yeah, the plant <laughs> roots grew underneath the next door home and somehow broke through its concrete floor, which makes me a little bit concerned about how sturdy the foundations of UK houses are. Um, yeah, there's some pictures in the article. I'm not sure that I would encourage you to go to the mirror, but I definitely want to encourage you to see these pictures. It's really just like bamboo all over the floor, but it also has somehow come up through the into the next sort of floor and it's growing out of the wall so it's like ruptured its way it's very alien-esque ruptured its way through the honestly quite ugly wallpaper um and there's now like a bamboo tree growing really or you know bush grass i guess growing really nicely in the corner of the room i love plants in my house so i personally think it adds a certain something but boy it has gone to town so just a reminder <laughs> The plants are the worst. Um, yeah, my housemate is an ecologist and he was telling me that there's this thing called Japanese knotweed, which is also mentioned in the article. And this is sort of infamous. If you have any Japanese knotweed, you're basically going to need to sort of burn everything from a one kilometer cubed around it. You know, it just, there's, there's always runners everywhere. And once you've got it, you can't get rid of it. And it's hugely invasive in the UK. So it's a big problem. But it turns out that bamboo saw knotweed doing its thing and was like i can do that too and has come <laughs> in on this house so yeah i'm sorry for these people it does look like they've managed to put in an insurance claim so hopefully that turns out okay for them in the end <laughs> wow wow bamboo <laughs> <laughs> Cat fact. Uh, I have a suggestion what they could do if 
they have to move because of the bamboo taking over the house. This um, is to already an awful segue. This is. <laughs> <laughs> because if they if they do what owls what what helps owls to feel at home in a new place um what they would have to do is smear some poop in the new house or like some poop color uh and play some cries of other humans you and then they will feel right at home because this it is was what gonna be a bad segue but you made it worse by mentioning poop so well done yeah, but this is what we have to do to owls, um, to a, some a specific kind of owl, the burying owl, uh, owl that's living on the west coast of the United States. And unlike most other owls, these are quite social creatures, so they like to live where other owls of their kind live. Um, but where they're living right now, um, a lot of the, the property is being developed, which is fancy for word for just putting concrete everywhere where owls can't really live. And so they have to move them elsewhere because often on their own, they did, this is based on a recent study, on their own, these owls don't do very well. So there's um, protection programs going and they try to help these owls. And they realize the best way to f make them feel at home at the new place where they um, settle them is to spray some white paint like that looks like bird droppings and also to play owl cries um uh, around the time when they arrive and then they think oh there's already other owls here um it's fine and then they they um build their nests and their, their burrows and then they continue to live there and that's that's already like the entire story but i think it would be it's probably not a good idea <laughs> for us humans to do the same thing wow amazing <laughs> conclusion um so that was it for us today i'm having a mental breakdown from the quality of the connection but yoram has assumed assured me he will wizard it all in post if you want to talk to me on instagram or maybe facebook it's at plants for pets if you want to talk to yoram it's at plants for pets our opening and closing music is caravana by philip gross oh my goodness you can also go to plantsandpets.com and that is it that's all goodbye yarm don't speak let's leave it at that <laughs>